Hello, and welcome again to another edition of a 21 News podcast. I'm Derek Steyer. Joining me now is Dr. Ben Newman, Chief Virologist at Texas A&M University. He's also from Niles, and we have enjoyed talking to him from time to time over the past year. And of course, we are here to discuss the coronavirus pandemic one-year anniversary. So Dr. Newman, for us in Ohio, it was around this time last year when we started seeing patients get sick, um, so cases started going up, the shuts, shutdowns were, were put in place. I'm curious, though, when this new coronavirus first popped up on your radar. Yeah, um, the guy at the Washington Post was just asking that, and I went back and found the email. I think it was, I want to say January 9th, and it was a CNN story that there was a new coronavirus in China. So this is when they had the sequence and had just released it. And we think it was circulating at least a month before that. But uh, that's the point at which it was a big enough deal to go public. And uh, yeah, at that point, I thought it's going to be small. It's not going to be a big deal. And uh, boy, was I wrong on all those points. Yeah. <laughs> so give us some history, some background here. Where did this coronavirus come from? It's distant relatives all are bat viruses. And so like the ultimate answer is almost certainly bats. If you want to go back even further, the relatives of coronaviruses you find in amphibians and fish. So, yeah, you know, but that's probably going back too far because those are coronaviruses technically, but they're in a different branch of the family. Um, so this branch, then we were missing a chunk of its history. So the nearest strain that we can find in anywhere in a laboratory in the wild so far is about a thousand nucleotides different. The virus changes at a rate of about 30 nucleotides a year. So we're talking a lot of evolutionary distance between the last clue that we have and this thing. It's out there. It's just that not every animal gets a Q-tip shoved down its you know gullet <laughs> and uh, the virus is pulled out and sequenced. It's a matter of going around uh, to a Noah's Ark worth of creatures and doing exactly that test. That's how you find it. And you got to not just find one, you got to find one that happens to be sick on the day. So challenging, but totally possible. And yeah, I, I'm not sure what it is, but I would lean towards something that is sold in um, the wet markets, the wild animal markets. But there's all kinds of stuff, legal and illegal, <laughs> sold in those markets. Um, yeah, including like protected species. So it is really hard to say at this point. But highly likely it came from a bat. Ultimately, definitely. Did it go through, what animal did it go through on the way or was it directly from a bat? Yeah, we're not sure. The pangolin viruses are close, maybe, but they're not any closer than the bat virus. They're just closer in some parts. So it's probably part of the answer, but not all of the answer. So one year later, we still don't know how it was transmitted to a human. That is it. We know roughly where, roughly when. We know the sequences of some of the earliest strains. And we know that all the early sequences... So the, the genome is like a clock. It makes mutations at a pretty predictable rate. And you can trace all the sequences we have back to about the end of November. And we also learned about the first sequence, we think, early December. And so it could have been spreading end of November. I mean, everything points to a time, just not a cause. And speculating wildly, if it was some kind of illegally trafficked animal, 
all the people that were doing that would know all about Chinese jail and how you go there if you get caught. And I would imagine any evidence would have been, possibly was destroyed. And so that just makes it that much more difficult to track down. You've kind of got to go and find the virus again in a wild population. But it's out there somewhere. We just got to, yeah, <laughs> kind of have a lot of Q-tips and a lot of patience. We've studied coronaviruses for decades. What about this one that amazed, perplexed, stunned, put in whatever adjective you want to put in there for you that made it different from other coronaviruses? Well, I mean, to start out, it's it's just a SARS coronavirus. Every single protein, every gene, same order, same genes, same everything. It's just got 3,000 mutations kind of sprinkled over the entire thing. Like, yeah, just like sprinkles on top of ice cream. So very familiar flavor of ice cream, a little different topping. I think the neatest thing to watch has been how quick the scientific progress has been in getting us to where we are. So the vaccines are all built on something that was done a few years ago. Um, they figured out some people were trying to make the MERS coronavirus spike protein and just make a better version of it that they could actually grow enough of to do something with. They figured out these little tweaks. You can change a couple amino acids to one that's called proline. And all of a sudden you get like 70 times more and it doesn't fall apart and you can purify it. It's just well behaved. <laughs> and it turns out that's close enough to the SARS virus that you can spot the exact place, make those little tweaks and sure enough, it worked. And so working on coronaviruses, like I was interested in the spike protein for over 20 years when we finally get our first rough structure of the spike protein. It was a matter of what, two months before we had a full structure of this new spike protein, just amazing. And that's the one that went on to be in every single vaccine, that stabilized version of original SARS uh, spike. Yeah, yeah, really cool. <laughs> and that's a question I, I had for you here today, the warp speed time that it took to get a vaccine to distribution. Did you ever think you would see something so relatively fast, historically speaking? No, not really. Um, but all the pieces were there. The slowest part in any clinical trial is lining up the money and the people and being at a place in a time where there's enough disease around that you can actually do the test with 20,000 people for three months and end up with usable number of uh, cases. There aren't many things that get that bad that fast, but <laughs> here it is, ready-made, yeah. Over the last year, it seemed like information almost changed daily. Um, is that the nature of the science changing and really learning about something so new in real time, you think? So before, before COVID, in the BC times, um, you could go to the coronavirus conference and at the coronavirus conference of about 300 people, and they'd only hold it every two or three years, you'd have maybe a third to half that are working on human coronaviruses of medical importance. And everybody else does their own thing because there's hundreds of different coronaviruses, very weird and wonderful, and that's fine. A lot of agricultural ones. Um, and then all of a sudden, <laughs> SARS-CoV-2 hits, and you got bacteriologists, epidemiologists, everybody is dropping what they're doing, and all these really talented people are just saying, I'm great at structures, we'll solve the structure. I'm great at drug development, let's run these 20,000 compounds through the pipeline and see what comes out. 
And so, yeah, the field just got enormous. And I think it's going to contract back again once we get this under control. And it'll be back to the same 300 guys at the conference, plus a few new faces. But, yeah, that, that's all right. Uh, it's nice that scientists can redirect uh, in times of need. And part of that's driven by funding availability. But part of that is just like people wanting to help and having some skills where they actually could help. Yeah. So it's nice to see. Yeah. All right, hard hitting question here. What have we learned in the last year that could help the future of global health and managing potential disease threats and pandemics? Yeah, we've learned how to roll out a vaccine for a new thing in under a year from like concept to in people's arms. And it could actually be faster than that now that we have approved coronavirus spike based vaccines with these couple of little tweaks. That seems like a strategy that's going to work pretty generally for almost any coronavirus, any beta coronavirus, any way that nature can throw at us. And I bet we could tweak it if an alpha coronavirus, that's the other big group that hits people, uh, happens to pop up. This looks like the blueprint to end any future outbreak. And the inefficiencies in this one with going through all the little steps and baby steps and being really cautious could have gone a lot faster and could go a lot faster next time. Yeah. So that's the big one. And then things like remdesivir. Um, it was a failed Ebola drug <laughs> when we were coming into here. Worked really well in cell culture against uh, coronavirus and a bunch of other things. Now we know it can actually just beat on the virus um, inside of a person. And that is like the first real licensed drug to treat a coronavirus that actually works. Um, and that's really cool to see. For a long time, you'd have that sentence in your introduction. Coronavirus has no known treatment, no known cure. Yeah, you just have to live with it and, you know, get over it, I hope. <laughs> yeah. So what, need, what needs to happen to avoid a repeat of 2020? Do you want the full list? Yeah. <laughs> um, the scientific flow went pretty well. Um, you had people throwing everything they've got at the virus and coming up with good ways. From a regulatory perspective, it worked pretty well. So original SARS coronavirus is a thing called a select agent, which means you have to have it under lock and key inside of a locked lab. You have to have a record of exactly how much is in every single vial in the freezer as if it is the plague or something worse. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, SARS coronavirus 2 is just a regular category three thing, which means you can get a lot more done by a lot more people, a lot less um, uh, just sort of regulatory hoops to jump through. So it made it faster. And eventually, I think it'll probably get bumped up to select agent uh, once we get this thing under control, and that'll be okay. Yeah. Um, what was the rest of the question? I completely lost that thread. No, you're you're fine. You're fine. Like, what needs to happen to to avoid a repeat of 2020? And, and right. I don't know okay. if that goes into the political realm or not. Oh yeah, yeah. It, well, it goes into the realm of convincing people, and um, I don't know. Feels like uh, anti. Feels like. An anti-science perspective is now a political perspective. This is what good people should should be and do. And that's just so counterproductive. Science is just things that people do where they've been tested well enough to know what works and what doesn't work. That's, that's all it is. 
And the idea that you can say, well, I don't believe that thing. And just the, 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 the way that a scientist looks at this is if you want to hold a belief like that, you've got to come up with a better data set, better statistical tests, and you've got to show beyond a reasonable mathematical doubt that a thing is not the case or that something else is the case. That's, that's the conditions under which you're allowed to change your mind. And until then, you just got to remain, uh, yeah, uh, skeptical on your toes and just like a sponge for information. That is not the general <laughs> way that the public uh, sees things as far as I can tell. And uh, yeah, we just got to get off this anti-science train. That's really shooting ourselves in the foot and then reloading and <laughs> just going at it again. I don't know. I don't see any benefit, and there's a ton of harm in that. So a big part of this was the fact that that a lot of people just didn't believe in it. You had prominent people who should know better coming out and saying, "Well, I don't believe in it." So, and then you have other people that say, with things like a political question, we tend to identify with a particular group or a group of people. It doesn't have to be politics, and. If that group says so, then you say, you know what, I'm part of this group or I want to be. And so, yeah, I'm going to say so, too. And why not? It gives you something to talk about. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you're you're uh, yeah, you got good conversations at dinner parties for a while until people get tired of you. And then when it just spins out of control to the point where you have people just not believing really obvious things uh, that oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> That's tough because in science, you have to work really hard to show that something is or isn't the case. There is a process. There are so many numbers. And yeah, the only decision you can make is based on a whole lot of math. And you can't just decide something. If you want to decide which one's the better hamburger, go at it. Scientific questions, there's a process. <laughs> and yeah, if you're not following it, your opinion is uninformed and frankly uh, worthless. And yet you see worthless opinions spreading really far and really fast. I don't know. People have a hard time sometimes looking at the data, the primary data, and interpreting that. Or maybe it's just easier to go by what somebody else says than looking into p-values in a particular paper, <laughs> which is one of the statistical confidence results. <sighs> is it important, and if so, why, that we understand the journey of this coronavirus and its crazy dynamic in the sense that 40% have no symptoms and 2% who get sick die? If we understand that, we understand the full immune system and what makes each person different. At some level, it's going to be genetics. At some level, it's going to be a case of which cell out of your entire body got hit first and what was it doing at the time? Yeah, just, you know, <laughs> um, uh, it, that is a giant question. And we understand a lot of it. When things go wrong, we've got a pretty good map for exactly what goes wrong and 500 things that are happening along the way there. When things go right, we can show roughly what happened, why one happens and the or the other doesn't happen. That's the hard thing. And yeah, it's hard to tell how much of that is just chance, how much is genetics, how much is uh, environment at the moment. But 
you've probably got to have an accurate picture of what's going on in every cell in the body, like at the cell level, because some of these cells have the ability to start off a program where they're going to call in a bunch of other cells that'll then call in a bunch of other cells and it's going to snowball out of control. And it can be down to that one butterfly <laughs> flapping its wings and uh, moving the earth. Yeah, basically. And yeah, we're talking about things that are probably outside the realm of what the best computers can do in terms of holding data and processing it right now to really, really understand. Now, can we get close and can we find some shortcuts? Probably. Will the shortcuts make us better off? I, I think so. Yeah. So I think that's where people are looking right now. And, and, and this is to, to hopefully know how to treat it down the road? Or, or again, why is, what's going to be the benefit of knowing about this, specifically about this coronavirus so much? Somebody could ask the question, why did this happen? And you could rewind the tape biologically and say, here, that cell, that time, produced this message, talk to those two cells. Yeah. It's a satisfying answer. Um, that would be part of the idea of controlling it. But I think we're going to probably luck into one or more ways of actually controlling the disease without having to understand that. It's uh, That's pretty cool. There are some neat studies in mice where you have different populations of these macrophages, which are the ones that kind of go out of control and make a mess in severe COVID. And there are drugs you can put in that will change the profile of those things and change what they do and change the balance of them. So stuff like that may end up having a very large effect. And we still <laughs> couldn't tell you hands on heart exactly what's going wrong, but we could at least control it. And I think that's what people want. Yeah. As a scientist, yeah, I want to know why. But for everybody else, they just want to be happy and healthy and go about their normal lives. So, yeah. Yeah. And still, still today, there's so much unknown uh, about the long-term effects that COVID-19 is having on the body. We, you know, you've heard, probably heard, yeah. yeah, you've heard the term long haulers, people who continue to experience these symptoms for months. And some people hold on to the virus, like are actually infected for, uh, yeah, the longest I saw was 150 days, but the person was still infected at the end. They just decided to, you know, write the paper at that point because you can't wait forever. Publish your parish. <laughs> yeah. A lot that we will learn. I don't think any of it's going to be good news. I don't think anybody's going to have superpowers <laughs> because of COVID. Um but uh, the question is, how bad is it going to be and how widespread are the bad effects going to be? Yeah, we'll see. How long do you think it might take before we really know everything about this virus? Everything, never. Yeah, but um, to know enough to understand it really well, like long-term effects of original SARS coronavirus, we had a pretty good idea after three years, I think. And then studies after that basically confirmed what we'd learned up to that point. So that, that was uh, pretty good. There's always more you can learn. Yeah. And that's what keeps scientists in business, I guess. So that's okay. <laughs> sure. Sure. This thing is going to continue to mutate. It's a virus that one out of three times it copies itself, it will put in a random mutation. Most of those will be dead as a doornail on arrival. They will just, it will have broken something really important. But occasionally, one of those is going to get through. And so that's where the 30 changes in a year comes in. About 30 times in a year, this will make some kind of change somewhere at random, and it'll end up working out, or at least not being terrible. 
Yep. For someone though who studies coronaviruses, do you think that we'll ever have another coronavirus that impacts us the way it did globally again? The viruses are out there. There are a lot of bat coronaviruses that look just like SARS-1 and SARS-2. And a large proportion of those, um, people haven't looked at the viruses. So most of these have never been cultured, but they've taken out the spikes from those viruses because we know that's how the virus gets in. And the spike from those viruses can get into human cells just fine. So there is a very large population. And every time people look, they find more of these SARS-like bat coronaviruses. It's not just SARS though. Uh, You got MERS coronavirus, which is much deadlier pound for pound than SARS coronavirus. It kills about one out of three. And um, thankfully that one has not figured out how to spread really well person to person, or we've managed to kill it off with quarantines when it has so far. (laughs) But uh, yeah. And then there are all these other coronaviruses. There are so many groups we know of where the virus has all the right equipment to cause disease in a person and just hasn't done it yet. It has, um, what, uh, means and uh, motive. It's just lacking opportunity, I could say. Well, I want to wrap this up by touching, I guess, a, a little bit on a subject that we, we touched on earlier, and, and that is that this, this anti-science notion. And so what is your message to people who have lost trust in the healthcare system and scientific community for some reason? Dude, the earth is not flat. Yeah, get over that. And everything else kind of flows from that. (laughs) Just because something is difficult, um, like the saying, saying you don't believe in something is, in my opinion, the low effort version, because it's very easy to hold the contrary opinion. It takes, you don't have to read anything. You don't have to learn anything. You can just be edgy and interesting from the get-go and oh my gosh yeah (laughs) let's do it about something else anything but science because that hurts us when we do that about science yeah let it be about boy bands which which k-pop band is your favorite go to town there (laughs) yeah plenty of scope for it just not science all right excellent dr newman anything else that you would like to share um that maybe uh has been has been meaningful to you in this last year of of covering this pandemic? Um, It's been a lot. No, I mean, not necessarily more for me than anybody else, but my goodness, coronaviruses were a lot of fun. There were just these weird little things that you could study and talk to nobody about because nobody knew it. It's been really interesting to have them be relevant, but I would be very happy for them to go back to relative irrelevance. Yeah. Anytime now. Um, It's neat to be, I don't know, at least some little tiny part of changing something that I know is going down in the history books. Uh, We're going to be talking about this for a while. I feel yeah. For many different reasons. And uh, yeah, it's neat to live in interesting times uh, and I guess it's a burden, but uh, yeah, we're here and it's pretty cool to uh, be part of it. All right, Dr. Newman, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate you joining us. Of course, yeah, anytime you need help.